Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Rounds. We thought we would give you a, a widescreen today just to see where we live. Normally, you get a close Zoom, uh, but we've, today we felt you could see the time and our whole studio here because many of you have not been here. So that's the reason we decided to do a little wider today. So and that way, you don't have to zoom into my face directly, which is probably a good thing. Uh, so welcome to Grand Rounds. We, we have a, just an amazing speaker today. Uh, we're really delighted that Mark Del Monte uh, who is CEO and Executive Vice President of the AAP will be presenting Grand Rounds. And uh, we also have the honor that Dr. Scott Shoham, who, who is our professor and head of the Division of Pediatric Otolaryngology, but also the president-elect of the Connecticut chapter of the AAP will be introducing Mark. So it's a double duty here, fantastic, great people uh, that will present. And, and uh, Mark will speak about the AAP advocacy for children and pediatrics. So I think it will be a topic that will be very, very important for you. And uh, I'm sure Scott will mention the, you know, the great leadership that Mark has had over the years on behalf of, of children's and children's hospitals. I've known him for, for, for a few years in my role as chair at the uh, chair's meetings. But before we, we ask uh, Scott to uh, introduce uh, Mark, uh, we, we do have a, a special recognition and announcement. And, uh, you know, these productions and what happens behind closed doors is something that you don't always no, because uh, it's, uh, you know, it's flawless, it moves on, you've learned a lot, but there are people behind this that do this all the time. And there's one individual that since, uh, for a number of years, and certainly since the pandemic has worked very hard uh, for, for all of us to make sure that, that things actually take place and happen correctly. And so I'm gonna ask uh, Liz to come up here to uh, uh, share with us that uh, Nicole has been promoted uh, and also, I'm going to ask Nicole to come up here as well, and, and Liz will say a couple of things of the promotion, and I just really want to recognize her and thank her for the great work that she has done. So, Liz? Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Um, I really just wanted to take a moment to recognize Nicole. Um, her efforts in support of our educational mission um, is nothing short of impressive. I think all of our speakers would agree that Nicole does a phenomenal job guiding them, leading them. These wonderful pediatric grand rounds are really orchestrated um, by Nicole, and I'm just so proud of her and absolutely thrilled and honored to be her leader. Um, and I think everyone here and everyone that works with Nicole would agree. So congratulations, Nicole. Thank you. Um, I wish I could hug you. <laughs> Thank you for all that you do, Thank and you. good morning. <laughs> Congratulations, well deserved. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, again, please uh, send her an email and, and thank her virtually. Uh, she, uh, these things would not happen without both Liz and Nicole and Anna Marie to make sure that we actually take care of this. Uh, and Ken Spiegelman, obviously, also behind all of this. So Scott, I'm going to ask you to introduce Mark, and then Mark, uh, then you'll, you'll do your presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Juan. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This morning, we have a special treat. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Mark Del Monte, the CEO and Executive Vice President of the American Academy of, P of uh, Pediatrics. Mark grew up in California, uh, attended Gonzaga University for undergraduate studies, and then UC Berkeley for law school. Prior to joining the AAP in 2005, Mark served as Director of Policy and Government Affairs for the AIDS Alliance for Children, Youth and Families, a national organization advocating for children and families with HIV AIDS. Fast forward to today as CEO and Executive Vice President of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Mark leads a strong Chief Executive Team for the organization which serves 
67,000 pediatrician, pediatric medical subspecialists, and pediatric surgical subspecialist members. So thank you very much, Mark, for joining us today. I look forward to your presentation, and it's great to see you, at least virtually. Uh, thank you, Scott. Good to see you, too. Um, can you hear me and see me and see my slides? I think that's those are the big questions before we get started this morning. Uh, good. All right, let's roll. Well, thank you uh, very much. This is a great privilege to be back in front of Connecticut Children's. I, it's been a few years since I've been to see you. I look forward to seeing you all in person as soon as it's safe to do so. Um, in memory of our, our headquarters out here in Illinois, over my shoulder is a picture of the AP headquarters, which sits in the snow here and waits for us to go back. This is an important and vital time in the history of the Academy, certainly as we move through this moment in history for our country and for the world. Uh, AAP has been around for 90 years now. And as we look back over those nine decades, you can see where America's pediatricians, pediatric medical surgical specialists, uh, and others who care for children rise to the cha challenges over and over and over. Uh, when children and families need them. And I think that's the story of right now, that our members across the country, uh, nurse practitioners, school nurses, primary care physicians in the community, hospital-based subspecialty, all the range of professional and, and clinicians who care for kids uh, have really stepped forward and stepped up to be what children and families need in this moment. We've got a lot more work to do, so we'll talk some more about that. I have nothing to disclose this morning. I work only for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Let me begin by uh, thanking the chapter leaders of, of the marvelous uh, Connecticut chapter, Dr. Shom and Dr. Terranova, who um, have been a part of incredible work at uh, the chapter. Every state has at least one chapter in it. And without those state chapters of the AP, we would not be successful. And so I'm really grateful to leaders uh, like Scott and Jody Lynn who stepped forward uh, to help us do this work. I'll talk about advocacy quite a bit this morning. I'll talk about our COVID response, certainly at the AAP and um, a number of other brief topics, but to begin, we're in an advocacy frame of mind, I think, these days. Uh, so much work is in front of us with the pandemic, with mental health. Uh, politics are certainly on the forefront of our minds, having just been through a national election. And uh, today begins a, an impeachment trial in the United States Senate. And so advocacy is a key part of pediatrics and always has been. This is a quote from Abraham Jacoby himself in 1904. Uh, it is not enough, however, to work at the individual bedside in the hospital in the near or dim future the pediatrician is to sit in and control school boards, health departments, and legislatures. She is the legitimate advisor to the judge and the jury, and a seat for the physician in the councils of the Republic is what the people have a right to demand. This was in 1904, and so he was setting into the DNA of AP and all the whole profession of pediatrics and anyone who cares for kids, uh, that advocacy is definitely a part of it. And then about 30 years later, when the Academy was founded, um, from the very first address of our president, uh, Isaac Apt, who was the very first president, as an organization, we should assist and lead in public health measures, in social reform, and in hospital and educational administration as they affect the welfare for children. So apart from clinical excellence, the one-on-one -on -one interaction between clinician and patient uh, is the community, is the city, the state, the hospital, the healthcare system, and we have to advocate in all aspects of that. So fast forward then 90 years on, 
the Academy of Pediatrics today is got 67,000 members, about 450 employees. As I mentioned, at least one chapter in every state, 23 national committees, 52 sections uh, where you can join, and 13 councils, all of which do the work of the AAP on a day-to-day -day basis. We also are a uh, leading um, information provider directly to families. So we work through our members, certainly, to educate families about child health. But we also have healthychildren.org. And I'm proud of this website. I hope you're referring folks to it. Healthychildren.org in 2020 had 108 uh, page views by more than 68 million individual users. So that means that 68 million people went to the website 108 times a piece. Uh, that means this is sustained engagement by a lot of parents and families. Uh, the symptom checker is the number one part of the website, which is you punch in your child's symptoms and, and they tell you to, uh, what could be going on and to call a pediatrician. But it is so important. And I think the growth of healthy children really demonstrates something deeper. And that is families at this moment in time are eager for objective, credible information in a sea of noise on the internet and elsewhere. And so when they see that website powered by pediatricians, trusted by parents, uh, they know that this is authentic and objective and expert. And so that's why it's been so popular. The Academy stays focused on its core competencies. And so those three things are policy development. Uh, this is the policy that you see and hear about every day advocacy, which we'll talk more about, and then education, world-class education for our members in the United States and world-class education for our members around the world. Uh, these are the three things that we work on and, uh, and we're known for. So as we ground ourselves this morning, let's just remember who children are uh, in the United States. This is uh, census data from uh, reported last year, but um, from 2018. So thinking about who the healthcare system for children is providing care to, there are 73 and a half million children in the United States. This number has remained relatively stable over the last several decades. Uh, so the population of kids roughly remains the same even as the overall population of the United States changes. One in four children was born or as a parent who was born in another country. And so without immigration, the number of children in the US would absolutely be declining. Half of US children are a race other than white, 26% are Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, 14% are black, 5% are Asian, and 5% are other or mixed uh, uh, race ethnicities. One in five children speaks a language other than English at home, and one in six children lives below the very low federal poverty level. Uh, that is $25,000 for a family of four. And four in 10 children are covered by public health insurance. The number of Uninsured children has declined in recent decades, although in the last few years it has increased. And so this paints a picture of who kids are and who the healthcare system needs to respond to in order to be effective to meet the needs of this population. So uh, the board of directors of AAP sets for us a series of priorities each year. We have a strategic plan and a set of uh, child health priorities as well. And so obviously for 2021, the key priorities of the organization are to maintain an effective COVID-19 response, to advance mental health care for children and families, and to implement our AAP equity agenda. I'll say more about the COVID-19 response, certainly, 
Uh, I won't say much more about our mental health agenda, except to say here that this is a whole grand rounds all by itself. Uh, mental and behavioral health needs of children were in crisis before the pandemic. That's only gotten worse because of the pandemic. Uh, and certainly racial uh, equity uh, and, and equity in all its forms for LGBTQ kids um, across the spectrum uh, is our uh, number one priority. For 2021, we'll be focusing on racial equity, particularly anti-Black racism in the United States. And then outside of those three big priorities, uh, we will focus on our members' well-being. Uh, we are hearing much from our members who are struggling at this time. I'll get to talk more about that. We're building a new registry, so stay tuned. Uh, this is a new, large, longitudinal EHR-based child health data registry. Uh, we wish we had that right now. We could learn so much about COVID if we had that up and running, but we're looking forward to launching pilot sites this year and to, to building, finishing out that build next year. And then, of course, advocacy. So we'll talk a lot more about that. Okay, so we're in the middle of a hundred years uh, pandemic. Uh, in fact, we are starting to hit milestones of the pandemic. Uh, it was now more than a year ago that the Academy's publication, AAP News, first reported a novel coronavirus uh, in the United States. Of course, we had no idea then. Uh, some of our expert infectious diseases uh, folks knew what was coming. Uh, but we would have no idea uh, a year that it would be uh, a total change in our way of life. And uh, in more than in a year later, we would be looking back on our first year of the pandemic and thinking about the changes to work life, to school life, uh, and certainly the lives of children. The Academy has been working very hard since uh, April of last year to track the number of COVID cases in children. This is not a, a, a report that is made regularly in an MMW or anything else. In fact, AP, along with our partner Children's Health Association, has really been the only one uh, canvassing public health departments around the country and reporting this data. And so you just have to look at the slide. Uh, we started out uh, in a rising case count. Uh, there was probably an undercount because there was under testing in the, in the first two, three, four months of the pandemic. And then we got to summer and we thought we had sustained a very high level of transmission at 36,000 cases a week or 38,000 cases a week. And then of course, you all know what happened in the fall, a steep climb uh, straight up uh, to a peak in the middle of January of 211,000 cases in one week. Uh, the two uh, down um, weeks there in the, in the curve up was uh, weeks that public health departments were closed at least one day for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so the trend line really is consistent and clear. Now we've had a couple of weeks of down uh, counts over the last three weeks. We are hoping that that is a sustainable trend but not, right now we are still at a high level of transmission, 117,000 cases as of February 4th, uh, which matches to the middle of November of last year. And so we've got a lot more to go to drive those case counts down. As a part of the pandemic, children have sustained about 10 or 12% of the cumulative case counts. So whenever you hear a national number of the case counts, you can just presume that children are about 10 or 12% of that overall number. There's heterogeneity about the definition of children across the states, but um, I think these uh, trend lines are solid. And so we'll continue to report them. 
thankfully, as you know, um, the most extreme morbidity mortality has been escaped by kids. Uh, we still obviously worry about MISC and other long-term effects, but, um, but acute illness seems to escape pediatric populations. Over the last year or so, the AP has sort of pivoted quickly in order to respond. We've developed interim guidance on 23 different topics that are updated every 30 days. We've had more than 10 town halls with about 10,000 participants total, 2,000 individual questions asked through our COVID-19 email inbox, and numbers of grants uh, for no COVID response on telehealth, infection control, immunizations, and then working with our chapters through sub-awards. We've also had a very um, robust ECHO program with nearly a thousand people participating weekly uh, in an ECHO. And I just pulled a quote on the side here for one of them. Uh, Thank you for all you are doing to make sure we are offering the best care to patients as well as protecting ourselves and our staff in this ever evolving pandemic. And so, you know, we've been learning in real time. Our members have been learning in real time. The system has been learning in real time. Uh, while dealing with this crisis that's unfolding um, at every level. So I don't need to tell you that um, across pediatric healthcare, uh, there have been specific challenges to the systems. Uh, We have seen whether it's primary care, medical subspecialty care or surgical care, uh, all aspects of pediatrics have been impacted by this pandemic. Initially, we encouraged families to stay away from uh, primary care, to stay away from um, hospitals, if you could. That was the recommendation for everybody. Uh, We hoped that the under twos would keep their vaccines up, uh, but we saw that families listened and and reduced practice volumes across uh, across the system. We are now at least 10 million doses behind in routine childhood immunizations. We've got to get those kids caught up if we wanna get back to any sense of a new normal. We've seen a backlog of deferred medical care, whether that's uh, procedures in the hospital setting or well-child visits, uh, kids are very far behind in, in, in necessary and appropriate care. And the strain of practices and clinicians is real, uh, both financially and personally, as people have dealt with this pandemic. We do an annual survey of early career physicians. We have a couple of cohorts going Uh, Now, that's called our PLACES study, and this is 2020 data in response to a question from folks, how concerned are you about the following? And this is the percent of primary care, which is in dark blue, and and, uh, subspecialty care, which is in light blue, uh, that are reporting very concerned about the financial effect on their main work setting. Uh, More than half of primary care and almost half of subspecialty Uh, The increase in canceled patient visits, uh, 46% of primary care, 27% subspecialty. Uh, Layoffs in institutions and uh, elsewhere because of uh, reduced visits, 41% of primary care and almost 40% of subspecialty. And PPE concerns continue, 40% of primary care and 35% of subspecialty. This is not um, sustainable given the thin margins that existed in pediatrics already in the hospital setting, as well as out in primary care. And and so this disruption and shock to the system uh, is is potentially catastrophic unless we can remediate this and and change the future. In order to do that, we have uh, to get vaccinated for COVID-19. 
Uh, I participated and a number of folks from the Academy of Pediatrics in routine um, calls of oper then called Operation Warp Speed. And it was clear from the very beginning that, um, that we were going to have challenges in vaccine distribution, even though there was great excitement about the pipeline of products of vaccines. And one of the very first statements that our president, Lee Beers, uh, who issued when she took over as president of the Academy on January 1, this is just uh, 10 days in, uh, that, that there must be immediate changes in the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine, that the system is deeply fragmented and uncoordinated, that there is no, still no path for many physicians to receive vaccine, although we have seen uh, lots of our members who have been vaccinated, that the public health system is stretched and under strain, that the resources necessary to mount a, a universal uh, vaccine to all Americans were, were unavailable in public health departments whose resources were already thin. And so there needed to be immediate uh, contributions there. And that pediatricians know something about vaccine distribution and that we are here to help. Uh, the pediatricians in the United States form the backbone of immunizations in this country. Uh, thinking about how to get vaccines from a manufacturer into the arms of people is something that pediatricians do all the time. And we have a lot to offer in this space. Uh, the early moves by the Biden administration have been promising and we hope to see some turnaround here. But uh, just as recently as this weekend, we are getting uh, field reports and it is just too um, too mixed out there. Uh, it is unclear what is happening with vaccine distribution across the country. And, uh, and that's very, very important for kids because they're not currently being vaccinated. And so everyone around them needs to be. So for vaccine advocacy, our priorities are really clear. Uh, we wanna increase routine childhood vaccination. We need to get kids caught back up again. That is crucially important. Uh, we want to achieve a safe and effective COVID vaccine for kids. Uh, two of the products uh, are uh, Pfizer is just enrolled, finished enrolling uh, adolescent populations. Moderna is continuing to enroll. We're looking at the, at the vaccine development plan for the other products, but kids' um, vaccines are still months away. And we need to make sure that the whole healthcare system is vaccinated. Uh, two things to point to in terms of uh, progress here. We have passed the Vaccines Act. This is championed a piece of legislation by the pediatrician in Congress, Dr. Kim Schreier. Uh, this is a communications campaign and some uh, bolstering of the vaccine infrastructure system uh, in order to uh, speed vaccines uh, into the population. Uh, we need to get funding for this bill in order to mount that communications plan. And it gives some relief to primary care in the VFC programs to make sure that the poorest kids who need vaccines don't have administrative barriers to get there. Uh, we need to increase child enrollment in COVID vaccine trials. Uh, we, we need to get kids vaccinated as soon as possible. Uh, but the vaccine system also needs some improvement. Low provider payment is a barrier. Uh, there are bureaucratic and administrative barriers to the vaccines for children program that need to be addressed. Uh, we need to strengthen the role of public health in, in uh, vaccine administration, but also their role in running the system. And we need to make sure that we don't fragment the medical home, that vaccines are a key part of uh, seeing your doctor. And so making sure that, that children can receive their vaccines where they also get their well visits is increasingly important. And talking about vaccines, uh, increasing vaccine confidence is also important. 
the AAP is launching uh, a long-term effort with Frameworks, which is a public relations firm, to think about uh, new ways to engage in social media and other media outlets uh, to have a vaccine conversation with families uh, that bolsters confidence and reassures uh, those who are hesitant. Uh, the linkage between childhood immunizations and, um, and COVID-19 vaccine is really clear. If COVID-19 vaccine exacerbates vaccine hesitancy and, and inflames the anti-vaccine movement, uh, then that will be bad for childhood immunizations. If COVID vaccine uh, actually strengthens an understanding of public health and the necessary uh, vaccinations for community immunity, then the spillover effects will be positive for kids' vaccines. So we need to figure out how to have conversation that is effective as anti-vaccine folks are on social media and elsewhere. And so stay tuned because we look forward to rolling out new uh, initiatives about this uh, all throughout this year. So that's some COVID context. Uh, but you know, there's so much more going on, uh, and and how do we as advocates in this completely virtual environment uh, do advocacy to meet this moment? Uh, how do we build systems that uh, children need, not just back to the way they were in January of 2020, but how do we make this moment uh, a possibility of building systems with children in mind, with children and their physicians at the center of the system, so that we're drivers of healthcare. Uh, and not the recipients of decisions made by third-party payers or, or government regulators or somebody else. And so I think we have a real opportunity here to think about advocacy differently and define the future as we build back from this uh, pandemic. Uh, it, it, everything about what we're seeing, uh, certainly in my time in more than 25 years of, of lobbying, uh, this is totally different. Just even the headlines that you see in the context of this moment. Uh, we had a inauguration without people on the mall. We have senators being sworn in wearing masks and we have razor wire uh, fencing around uh, the Capitol. And we have headlines like children's screen time has soared in the pandemic, alarming parents and researchers. Should you worry about your kids pandemic weight gain? Think of body changes as something to be curious about, not a problem to be solved. And the surge of student suicides pushes Las Vegas schools to reopen. So even though there's so much around children and their lives that are invisible to us right now, we know they're not all right. And we know we need to get systems back up and running. We need to get children back to school safely uh, in order to start to dig out from all the harm that this pandemic has caused. And no matter what happens, I think we still go back to our basic theories about how this all works together. So uh, Julius Richmond, who was a pediatrician and surgeon general gave us a framework for advocacy that we use all the time in AAP. And he said, in order to change public policy, you have to have scientific knowledge, you have to have political will, and you have to have a social strategy. And as you're thinking at the local level, and it's the same way we think at the national level, what is the knowledge base that we have how do we get the coalitions and people together to build that political will? And then what is our strategy to change hearts and minds in order to get our advocacy goals met? We're doing this in the context of a new Biden-Harris administration, of course, but we're also doing this with a, a very divided Congress uh, and a divided Congress, well, as divided as is, is actually possible, 50-50 <laughs> split uh, is as divided as you possibly can get. Uh, the vice president uh, will go down to her former job uh, frequently in order to uh, break ties 
in the United States Senate. Uh, we have an impeachment trial that's starting today. There's debate about a COVID package uh, working its way through and mechanisms like budget reconciliation where people learn about these arcane processes in the Senate. You know, how do we take all of this context and build an advocacy agenda that works in the midst of it all? Well, you have a plan, as Dr. Richmond said. Uh, the Academy produced a blueprint for children in 2020 before the national election in November. And in fact, uh, this was the second time we did it. We produced a similar blueprint in 2016 before the national election then. And it's important for us to write policy for kids without knowing who's gonna win the election because it articulates the message for AAP that it doesn't matter who the president, who the president is. The, what children need is what children need. And pediatricians in the Academy of Pediatrics will articulate a child health agenda that is what's best for kids, no matter who is in office, in the White House, in the Senate, in governor's mansions, or state legislatures, or school boards, or anything else around the country. Uh, based on our best understanding of the science and evidence, we articulate agenda for kids. Uh, and so the quote from the opener of the blueprint is, as pediatricians, it's our job to listen to the science. Its message is clear. Our society isn't fulfilling our promise to children. But as pediatricians, it's also our job to heal children, to treat pain and discomfort, and to address the forces causing them. And so the blueprint, uh, aap.org slash blueprint, it's, it's there for you to read. It's divided up into five domains, uh, and it really addresses issues from social determinants of health to basic access to healthcare insurance. Uh, and the like. And it, we provide that to both campaigns. We did that in 2016. We did that again in 2020. And, uh, and once the outcome of the election was clear, we produced a transition plan and provided that to the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, as Dr. Beers said, she said, we show up and we speak up. That's what pediatricians do. Uh, the transition plan that we gave to the Biden-Harris administration had um, 163 recommendations across a number of domains. Uh, it was a checklist uh, that they could do starting on day one uh, to just tick through a list of action steps from executive orders and administrative rulemaking to legislative proposals. And of course, we think that the federal government always operates better when pediatricians are in it. And so we urged the Biden-Harris administration to appoint pediatricians to positions of authority across the federal government, not just in healthcare. Uh, the transition plan is at aep.org transition. I urge you to take a look at that as well, just to see uh, what are the kind of specifics that we have in there for kids. The domains you know, are across immigrant populations and race um, equity and uh, healthcare access and social drivers of health and all the rest. And I, I'm happy to report that this slide is now a couple days old, but as we enter the first couple of weeks of the Biden-Harris administration, a number of our topics uh, that were in the transition plan, we can scratch those right off the list uh, just based on the first uh, administrative and executive actions that the Biden-Harris administration have taken. So uh, for COVID-19, for example, there has been a new federal mask mandate, particularly interstate travel in federal buildings and in um, TSA uh, regulated um, um, transportation like airplanes and uh, trains. 
We rejoined the World Health Organization. Uh, they have a new agenda about opening schools. I could talk a lot about the need to open schools safely. There are controversies around the country about that. Uh, and, uh, and that can be solved with appropriations. I think there, there needs some resources to help states get their schools open. Uh, they uh, have created a council of advisors on science and technology. This is one of our recommendations to refocus and reimagine uh, science-driven policy, particularly bolstering the reputation uh, and expertise of the CDC, uh, tr prohibiting transgender discrimination, particularly in the military, uh, and moving forward on race, ethnicity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, there's a new health equity task force. Uh, there is an equity assessments uh, that are required across the federal government. Uh, this ban on, um, on racism training that was an executive order of the last administration has been revoked. Uh, they've extended uh, eviction uh, delays and, um, and bans. Uh, they're working on student loans, uh, $15 minimum wage for federal contractors now, but that's a legislative proposal for the rest. These were our recommendations about lifting children out of poverty, uh, climate and environmental justice, certainly uh, Paris Climate Accords, a national climate task force uh, commitments to carbon reductions, and then immigration. Certainly this has been a, a facing forward issue for the AAP, uh, the reinstatement of DACA, uh, the inclusion of everyone in the United States to be counted in the, in the Senate, the end of the Muslim ban, uh, uh, re revocation of penalties for sanctuary cities, uh, et cetera. And then on healthcare, uh, working for reproductive health rights immediately, a new enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act marketplaces and taking away guidance to states on Medicaid waivers. In the healthcare space, uh, there's many things that President Biden can do by executive order, but there are many things that he cannot. And so untangling uh, the uh, obstacles to Medicaid enrollment, for example, or permissive state waivers that increase barriers to access to Medicaid are going to take a while. Uh, and there's litigation in the courts about the Affordable Care Act's constitutionality, et cetera, and winding those down are going to take a while. So in the healthcare space, we have a lot of work ahead of us, even, uh, even as uh, much work has already been done. And they've taken our advice about pediatricians. So pediatrician David Kessler uh, was named early on to a COVID advisory board of the transition, including Dr. Julie Morita, uh, who was from Chicago, but now is at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as a board member of the uh, transition advisory board on COVID. Uh, of course, Dr. Rachel Levine has been chosen uh, to be Assistant Secretary for Health. She will need to be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, Dr. Kessler was then hired by the new uh, administration as the Chief Science Officer for COVID Response. He's already out in front working on that. And we have a ch new Chief Medical Officer at the Department of Homeland Security who is a pediatrician. Uh, I think there's no way to um, say this except for that represents a new administration policy on immigration. It is a new day. Uh, Dr. Beers issued a very uh, lengthy press statement um, about immigration policy and hailing the appointment of Pratesh Gandhi as uh, chief medical officer at DHS. Uh, it is important that uh, the, this administration understand the suffering of immigrant kids and our role in it and the hard work to reunite families and to have a humane immigration policy, particularly at the Southern border. Uh, Dr. Beer said, we need leaders who will design policies that protect and promote the health, safety, and dignity of aspiring Americans, asylees, and refugees. 
and applaud the Biden administration for picking a pediatrician, Dr. Pratesh Gandhi, as chief medical officer of the Department of Homeland Security. So we have a partner. We're already in touch with him uh, and, uh, and look forward to uh, his expertise uh, coming to bear as we craft immigration policy in the United States. One or two more things on access here uh, that's been important in the early days. One of the things that the, the Biden administration did in the, in the opening days was signal to all the states that the COVID public health emergency will likely remain in place through the entirety of 2021. Uh, the declaration of public health emergency has far reaching implications actually because uh, a number of uh, emergency authorities, for example, telehealth payments uh, was tagged to the public health emergency. And so the, the thought of losing that actually would roll back a number of the protections that we have been able to achieve uh, in the last year. And so some stability there is quite important for, for us to build upon. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, the executive orders on access, uh, opening a new um, enrollment period for the ACA, et cetera, it have been very, very important. Um, and that was issued last week. Stay tuned with us as this moves quickly. I mean, obviously this administration is not a month old and a lot has gone on. Uh, you can um, catch us every Friday with the federal update that we produce a capital checkup uh, that gives you the latest on what's going on in Washington from a pediatric health perspective. Uh, you can sign up for that. Just send an email to kidsfirst at aap.org. Kids, the number one ST at aap.org. And join us for our advocacy conference coming up in April. This is the first time we've ever done the advocacy conference virtually. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, our Committee on Federal Government Affairs is actually doing Hill visits this morning. Uh, these are all virtual uh, Zoom and WebEx and web GoToMeeting based uh, Hill visits. So we're piloting all those strategies so that as many people as want to join the advocacy conference can in April. And I'm happy to announce that our keynote speaker for that advocacy conference is Stacey Abrams, uh, who is a community organizer from Georgia, former leader of the um, state house there. And uh, she's gonna tell us about uh, how to get uh, people mobilized in this era. So I'm excited to have Stacey Abrams with us for that advocacy conference. Um, registration is available now at the AP website. The other thing that's really in focus for us at this moment is pediatric subspecialty. Uh, we know that children are behind in their primary care visits and in their vaccines, but what we also know is that they're behind in visiting their subspecialist and they're delaying um, uh, non-emergent surgery. Uh, this is, this uh, COVID-related issues uh, exacerbate existing workforce problems and struggles that we had before the pandemic. And so AEP uh, has been focused on the needs of subspecialty and, and surgical specialty for some time. And it's very important uh, that, that we have the voices of our subspecialties and surgical members uh, as part of everything we do. <clears throat> we produce a specific academic and subspecialty advocacy report uh, that comes out quarterly that, that, that identifies and names uh, specific issues that that uh, happen uh, in academic medical centers or in hospital-based pediatrics, as well as, uh, as community-based subspecialty. But we know we have workforce challenges. We are, um, uh, there are a number of subspecialties that are not filling all of their fellowship slots. Uh, 
our subspecialists and surgeons don't have the medical and surgical devices they need because there's market forces uh, preventing them uh, from developing. Payment is low, particularly for the non-procedural based subspecialties. Uh, the pipeline for clinician and physician researchers um, is so important to us, but, uh, but if, the, if the research funding is, is not growing uh, as needed in pediatrics, then you can't build that pipeline, you can't induce participation. Uh, GME slots uh, are uh, hard to come by. We've seen a huge investment in GME slots just recently in, by the Congress. And so we worried about uh, making sure those are distributed to pediatrics and subspecialty. And then access uh, to a subspecialty uh, from, for, for children has been an ongoing concern. All of this um, adds to a very robust agenda to strengthen our pediatric workforce overall, but specifically uh, sub medical subspecialty and surgical specialists. There's lots of data sets here. Um, uh, some of them um, are more specific than others, but um, the number of pediatricians who report that wait times for appointment for specialists are poor to fair, the darker the color is the higher the number. And so there is, I think, one state that is in the zero to 24% uh, category, but this is a concern for primary care that uh, it is hard to get children into the specialists that they need uh, because there are not enough of them and they are not uh, nearby. This is recent data published in JAMA Pediatrics, children with, in the US who live greater than 80 miles from a pediatric subspecialist. Uh, more than 12 million kids, almost 13 million children live more than 80 miles from a pediatric rheumatologist. Uh, it goes sports medicine, adolescent medicine, sleep medicine, hospice and palliative care, child abuse, pediatrics, nephrology, and the like. Um, there are different ways to look at this, these data sets, but they add up to the similar notion that there are not enough and they are um, not evenly distributed. One of the things that we uh, know is that student loans are a concern across all of medicine and they are particularly concerned in subspecialty. And so we've been working uh, to induce workforce through um, subspecialty loan repayment. We passed a bill in the first um, Coronavirus uh, Relief Act uh, we need to get that bill now funded so that we can get um, dollars to uh, individuals who go into subspecialty. There'll be a particular subspecialty day of action coming in March. Uh, happy to talk a lot more about that and stay tuned so that you can participate if you are a subspecialist in that advocacy day. And, uh, and we need you. Uh, we need everyone who is uh, caring about kids and certainly all of the clinicians taking care of kids to get involved and to stay involved with the AAP. Uh, it's important for you uh, to participate in your chapter uh, locally, but also um, with national AAP on every front. Uh, if you're not a member of the Academy, please join. And if you're not a member of your AAP chapter, please join the chapter. Uh, if you are already a member of the AAP and the chapter, uh, join a council, uh, be appointed to a committee or a section. Lend your specific expertise or join with people who are, uh, have similar passions uh, and subspecialty to you uh, and then take a leadership role. Uh, there's lots of work to be done right now and lots of uh, need, at, there's no shortage of that. And so I invite you all to be a part of the Academy. We also have a volunteer network. And so uh, if you have time and you want to lend your time and talent to the Academy, there are volunteer opportunities as well. Uh, just open AP.org and click on my collaboration sites. 
And then very importantly, uh, you can be a mentor. Uh, we are all very worried about the trainees right now. Uh, the environment that they're graduating into and the job market, et cetera, is concerning. And so you can be a mentor, a mentee, or both. Uh, you can be, a, as a member of the National, you can uh, join the mentorship program and buddy up with somebody who can uh, help you along the way. Uh, they'll be targeted towards your subspecialty or your particular interest, and it's really easy to join. Um, and there is the oops, there is the website here at the bottom. Um, we can share these slides, it's a complicated website. But whatever it means uh, for you, uh, no matter uh, how busy you are, if there's an opportunity for you to mentor a younger physician or join uh, AAP, we certainly need you now more than ever. And I invite you to be a part of the Academy, certainly. And with that, let me show you um, pictures of the two most impressive uh, one, uh, male child and one female child. This is my niece, uh, Avery, and my nephew, Parker, uh, and they're pretty cute. And so uh, I'll leave them up uh, during the question and answer sessions. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you. Uh, thank you, Mark, for a truly uh, outstanding uh, presentation of uh, multiple topics. And, and thank you for your ongoing leadership on behalf of children's healthcare, which is really what drives you and, um, and also the Academy. Uh, we have a, a, a number of questions uh, and, and one that I would, I'll begin with, uh, with, with one from one of our pediatricians, <clears throat> Dr. Larry Sersis. What is the AAP's position with respect to supporting the medical home and primary care practices with respect to the challenges introduced by the growing number of urgent care and walk-in centers. So um, w talk a little bit about urgent cares and if you know that's taking business away or not and how do they interact with primary care pediatricians. Uh, thank you so much and thank you for the question. You know, this is really important. Uh, we are seeing the um, uh, sort of commodification and, um, and, di and slicing up of primary care and its distribution to all sorts of um, sites from the local box store to the local chain pharmacy, et cetera. And this is really not good primary care for children. We know what is what works best for children and families, and that's primary care in the medical home uh, with, with care that's coordinated by the medical home team uh, that includes subspecialty and surgical care, uh, hospital-based care when necessary. But a, a physician that has a longitudinal relationship with the child and their family, uh, and so that the health supervision and health promotion uh, um, can go across the life course of a child. That is the gold standard for care. And so these sort of acute care and sick visit um, places, you know, you can, you can put your name in and then go shop in a store with your sick child and then bring your sick child all throughout the store. And then when your number is called, go get um, um, uh, uh, seen is, is not the best care. So I think we have to do a couple of things. Uh, one is that we have to demonstrate uh, the, the value of primary care in a medical home. And that evidence base is increasingly growing and quite clear. And that's not just true in pediatrics, actually. Primary care in a medical home uh, has improves outcomes, reduces cost. And so by any metric that you're interested in, we should be focusing on uh, supporting the medical home. There are advocacy approaches to this, aside from just being clear about the research. I think uh, there are regulatory issues associated with all of it that we can focus on. And so uh, I, I think that um, 
vaccination is a perfect example of this. We know that many pediatricians offices have flu clinics, for example, that provide flu vaccine to families in addition to their own patients. And if we can get the cold chain systems worked out and payment systems worked out, we think pediatric practices are, are a great place for COVID-19 vaccine for those practices that are able to do that. So steps that we can take to reinforce the medical home uh, and strengthen the connection of families to the medical home uh, as, the, as the primary source of care, I think uh, make these conversations about all the fractured uh, sources of primary care easier. And so we'll continue to do that. It's a great question and an important threat. Uh, thank you, Mark. Um, another question from, uh, actually, it's a comment from your friend, David Kroll, who's now our Chief Medical Officer for our Clinically Integrated Networks. And thanks, Mark, for your leadership and for the support to the Academy for all the pediatricians and the children and families they serve. So that's just a comment yeah. from David to you. It's nice uh, to have friends. Yeah, thanks, David. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from, uh, Diane Powers is one of our uh, you know, uh, very excellent uh, pediatric nurse practitioners. She works in our primary care unit. Does the AAP allow pediatric nurse practitioners to be members? Oh yeah, we certainly do. Uh, please do, yeah, be, please, be, please be a member of uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Look, what we know is that the best care for children is provided by teams. And so there is certainly a role for the pediatrician, uh, the pediatric nurse practitioner, the PA, uh, the school nurse. Uh, there are important roles for everyone to play in, in providing the best, uh, best care. And so for the AAP, we try to take a team-based approach, certainly. And so we have uh, lots of um, um, opportunity for nurse practitioners to participate and be involved. We also work very, very closely with NAPNAP, which is the Association of Nurse Practitioners, um, the, and, uh, in, and increasingly with the ANA, we just we have a wonderful project going with the American Nurses Association uh, now about suicide prevention. And so uh, we, there are so many um, needs for children out there that, uh, that we all need to be in this together. There's plenty of work to do. And so um, if we can divide up and, and do, I'll do our part, I think that's how we get the best outcome. So yes, the answer is yes. Tell your friends, tell all your nurse practitioner friends, uh, please join the chapter, please join AAP and please participate uh, even more importantly in all of the activities uh, of the Academy for sure. Thanks, Mark. And so we'll send out a, uh, a link for the for anyone who has been a member of the AAP. A question that has come up uh, is not in the chat here in the Q and A, but it's been brought up to me multiple times: is uh, what is this, the stance of the of, of the of the American Academy of Pediatrics and Telemedicine, current and future, and advocacy at the national and local level for payment reform, so that these practices can you know the telemedicine can be covered appropriately? Thank you. Um, sure, and I should have I. I I should, I could have gone uh, uh, a whole other segment on telemedicine. Wow. So I think that the story of telemedicine and the pandemic is one of the most exciting things that we get to talk about. You want to talk about a whole system, a complicated, uh, um, uh, dense system of relationships and systems that can pivot uh, within a matter of days and weeks where people who had no experience in telehealth were doing full telehealth practice, uh, whether that was like on an iPhone doing FaceTime or calling families, um, et cetera. And I, I think that it is a story of innovation and a story of nimble and flexible response to the environment. And in the early days, we saw payers with us uh, that they were paying for flexible telemedicine. Uh, they were paying for, um, 
whatever platform, whether it's a phone call or even a, a HIPAA compliant uh, platform, et cetera. I, I think we need some more runway here on uh, continuing uh, diverse telemedicine approaches as we are thinking about what needs to settle in for the long-term here. We're learning about this tool. It will become a standard part of care. For example, we hear from the surgeons that they really like telemedicine for surgical follow-up, particularly for families who don't have to travel 300 miles uh, to come do a follow-up visit that would be acceptable over the phone or uh, on Zoom. So there's lots of uh, learning that we still need to do about the appropriate role and how to settle in once we start to climb out of the pandemic. Uh, while that's happening, we can't have the payers pull back. And so we need help from CMS to keep, uh, to keep payers in the game to keep paying for telemedicine. So I don't think that we're there yet. Uh, there's a lot of indeterminacy out there. I think the payers are starting to tighten up um, they're tightening up on telemedicine payment, they're tightening up on PPE, they're tightening up on test payment. This is all backwards. Uh, we, we need different things from payers right now. Uh, they're doing fine. Uh, and so they need to be more generous to the pediatric care system uh, while we're learning about all these approaches. So we think there's a strong role for telemedicine in the future. We don't think it's a substitute for, for the in-person patient visit, particularly um, in well-child visits, but uh, well, it'll, it'll get us through. So I, I think we're working very hard uh, on this, and uh, and the story is not finished being told there. Great. Thank you, Mark. Uh, there, there are a number of other questions, and uh, there are some that are related to COVID-19 that are more on the on the scientific element to this, and so I'm, I'm going to ask uh, our two, uh, the two questions about uh, asymptomatic disease of COVID or new strains of the virus that we, we moved that to Fridays. Ask the experts. I think we have Dr. Shriver the whole hour this time, so there'll be plenty of time to, to answer specific scientific questions about COVID. Here's a uh, somewhat of a political statement and question, Mark, and I think this is important. Um, the statement says the AP has become so liberal. And, and so the question that I, that I ask you, which is a translation of what's in the Q&A, is, uh, you know, conservatism versus liberalism. And in and, and, advocacy for children's health care and children's well-being. So comment on that so that, you know, we have diversity of opinion in this country between, uh, you know, extremes are in the middle. How do we get around pediatric child wellness and child health care that is independent of conservative or liberal values? Yeah, thank you so much. I welcome the question. Um, and, uh, and, and I might just comment in response to Dr. Blummer's question. What we reported in our COVID-19 data is whatever the public health department was reporting. So the COVID-19 data chart that I showed was just the compilation of all the COVID-19 testing data that we have gathered from state and local health departments. So whatever data was reported by the, uh, so positive and asymptomatic would be reported in the same way that positive symptomatic, positive and ill uh, would be reported. So te positive testing was what is counted in our numbers. When we, so when we say 2.8 million, 2 million children have been uh, tested positive for COVID, that's what we mean, uh, that they have tested positive. We're not making comments about disease. So I can just uh, clean up what, uh, but I, I, you're right. I'm not a, a physician, I'm a lawyer and uh, not an infectious disease specialist certainly, uh, but I, I can talk about that. Um, let me let me address the politics question. You know, um, the academy um, has no political affiliation. We don't have a PAC. We don't make political donations. We don't uh, identify as Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal. And that has been true all along from uh, the beginning of the academy's founding. 
And the academy has worked since 1930 with Republican presidents and Democratic presidents, Republican-led Congresses and Democrat-led Congresses. We work uh, with anybody who cares about children and who um, wants to work with us on what we think is the best policy for children. You know, we recognize, however, that some of our um, positions that AAP takes are not supported by all of our members. And I think that's okay. Uh, that there can be a difference of opinion in medicine about particular uh, medical procedures or uh, different approaches to um, particular populations of kids. All of our policy works its way through our expert committees and is ultimately approved by every single member of the board of directors in a unanimous vote. And so our policy positions, even though they might not be agreed upon by everybody, I think uh, people do agree that they've been through a rigorous scientific review and process internally. And so we invite and welcome all political perspectives of the Academy. Uh, and I think our membership is growing as a result of that. People can see when AAP is in the game. Uh, and I think our visibility over the last year or two years or three years, beginning back to even Colleen Kraft uh, talking about issues of children on the border, uh, for AAP to be in the public spotlight, articulating the needs of children uh, from the perspective of the expert pediatrician is so important and so powerful. And uh, our tent is big and wide and can hold a lot of diverse viewpoints. And so I really hope that everybody uh, who cares about kids will feel comfortable being a part of the AAP. Thank you, Mark. Uh, great, great response to that question. So I really welcome that. It. So it's uh, nine o'clock. Um, you know, again, people were making comments in the Q&A, uh, uh, thanking you for your leadership and the Academy for what they do. And I echo that. Certainly, uh, you know, a tremendous organization on behalf of children's health care. And I could not be more proud to be a member of the AAP. Uh, with that, I think we're going to finish Grand Rounds. going to pass it on to Scott to make final comments, and then we'll close. Thank you so much. Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning and imparting your, your wisdom and eloquence. Just want to say uh, for those of us who are members of the AAP and recognize the value in uh, policy, advocacy, and education, thank you so much. For those of you who are not yet members, please consider joining. Be well and stay safe, everyone. Take care. All right. Thank you, everyone. Be good. Bye-bye.